I'd like to turn you to Joshua chapter 8 for our scripture reading. Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. Background for what we will do when we turn to the word to proclaim it. Now Joshua built an altar to Yahweh God of Israel. Excuse me, if I use the word Yahweh there, I don't mean to insult anybody. But the word Lord in all capital letters in Hebrew is God's name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. The Jews in their interest said about it since they were not allowed to take his name without thinking it through thoroughly uh, that they probably shouldn't take it at all so they changed some of the letters uh, in the way they pronounced them so that you wouldn't have to pronounce God's name but you'd call him Adonai Adonai means Lord, Mr, something like that but not God, God's covenant name so if I read that, God's identifying himself specifically as opposed to all the other things that call themselves God. Now Joshua built an altar to Yahweh God of Israel on Mount Ebal. And Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, that an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it a burnt, off- burnt offerings to Yahweh, and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses which he had written. Then all Israel with their elders and officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priests of the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of Yahweh. The stranger as well as the people of Israel. And afterwards he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. So the nature of an altar was a place where God was to be called on, a place for worship. And as we look at Joshua's stones, we're going to see a place for worship. Joshua chapter 4. Like to read the whole chapter? Please remember that just because in preaching class you are told that the shorter the passage, the longer the sermon, does not necessarily mean that the longer the passage, the shorter the sermon. <clears throat> Joshua 4, beginning at verse 1. And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, And command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men, whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord, the ark of Yahweh, God of Israel, into the midst of the Jordan, And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, 
What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh when it crossed over the Jordan. And the waters of the Jordan were cut off and all these stones shall be as a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so. Just as Joshua commanded, they took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as Yahweh had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood. There they are to this day. So the priests who bore the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that Yahweh had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua and the people hurried and crossed over then it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over that the ark of Yahweh and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people and the men of Reuben the men of Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spoken to them about 40,000 men prepared for war crossed over before Yahweh to battle to the plains of Jericho On that day, Yahweh exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then Yahweh spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of Yahweh had come to the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And the twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan Joshua set up in Gilgal. And he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For Yahweh your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of of Yahweh, that it is mighty, that you may fear Yahweh your God forever. That far from God's word. The stones are pictures with quotes they call attention to their content to their meaning we do the same with monuments we do the same with statues of heroes historical markers town names but we use non-physical monuments too memories parts of our lives our security the idea is ancient we also use altars not always to worship God. Those altars are places to worship, but we have places to worship, not altars. But we have cathedrals. The ancients had pyramids. Some still do. The content of the monuments is what's involved. The content is the memories of what has gone before or what we believe has gone before. There are other monuments, other stones. There's also history. There are morals. You may think that only Christians and only Christian nations have morals. When we first went into Indonesia and we went to Irian Jaira, 
we talked to the tribes there. And we discovered that the tribes had a really weird set of morals. To them, murder was heinous. But if it wasn't your family member, it wasn't murder. So you could go murder somebody from another tribe. That was fine. They believed that stealing was just as heinous. But if it wasn't from your family or from your tribe, it was fine. You could go sack another town, and if they weren't part of you, it was wonderful. But there was some vague remembrance of God's law, even in societies that had never heard God's law. Because all of the laws of creation, all of the revelation of God in creation, the moon, the sun, the stars, his hand, as this hymn says, the wonders wrought. They are a witness and a memorial. Why does the sun come up in the morning? Because that's the way nature works, is it? What makes nature work? I propose to you that the sun comes up on the east, seems to at least, comes up on the east, every morning because God says, okay, sun, now's the time. Same for you breathing. Breathing isn't something that you do subconsciously because your body says, I need a breath. In the providence of God, and the sovereignty of God, you take a breath because God says, breathe. And you do. These are memorials. And that's what Joshua is bringing these men and his people to see. So it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan River, that Yahweh spoke to Joshua saying, Take your for yourselves twelve men from the peoples, from the people, one man from every tribe. The commentators say that you probably shouldn't translate that one as past tense, but you should translate it as continuing active tense. But they are supposed to take twelve stones. Twelve stones out of the river. What would those stones look like? Would they look like a stone that you picked up on the shore? No, they'd been in the water for a long time. And the water was moving over them. They would be smooth. If they were on the bank of the river, you would say, What are they doing here? Which is exactly the point. God says to Joshua, I want you to have twelve guys. One of them pick up a stone. Not a little one. One so big that he had to put it on his shoulder and carry it with his back. Okay? And you're supposed to put them on the bank. And he's going to set up a monument there. Whether it's an altar, might have been. Maybe he built an altar beside it, as we saw later, as we see later in the passage. But what you see is something that was set up that was going to draw attention. People would walk by and they'd say, What are they doing here? How did they get up here? Well, they got up here because God stopped the Jordan River and we came across on dry ground and so we could pick them up. The stones were something that was about what was designed by God to make people ask a question, to be reminded of God's power and what God had done for Israel. Joshua tried to add to it. There's nothing in Scripture that says it was wrong. But he says he had those same 12 men pick up 12 big stones from on the shore and put them in the middle of the river. Now, I suppose I need to tell you a little about the Jordan River. It's not as big as the Mississippi. It might be as big as the Missouri. It's bigger than the Platte or the Susquehanna if you're in Pennsylvania. The Susquehanna in Pennsylvania was a disappointment to the explorers 
It's too shallow to sail. So you can walk across it in many places. Missouri, I don't think you can walk across very often. You couldn't to Jordan. So God said to Joshua, as he had said to Moses, tomorrow you're going to walk across the Jordan River on dry ground. To make that happen, he had to change the Jordan River. He didn't evaporate at all. We read that at one point uh, the banks must have caved in maybe 30 or 40 miles north of where the Israelites were. And it dammed up the Jordan River for long enough that the Jordan River was dry. Have you ever gone into a river? What, whether it's in Missouri or otherwise? If you were to take a bucket and stick it down into the river, take the bottom off the bucket, and then try to step on it, would you stand on firm ground? No, you'd sink in the mud. So if it's going to be dry enough for people to walk across, and wagons, and donkeys, and camels, uh, it's got to have time to dry. So God has planned this out. Either he gave it the extra days, or he dried it out by his own power. So that when the Israelites came, and they looked at the Jordan River, well, the priest's feet stepped into the water at the Jordan River, and the Jordan River stopped probably because the river upstream had already been dead. And they walked out on dry ground. And uh, they dry, as they stood in the middle, the river stayed stopped. And the Israelites crossed over. What I'd like you to remember, and I'm saying this for all of the people, especially the children, what I'd like you to remember is there were more than four million Israelites who walked across the Jordan River. Now, maybe they walked fast because they were afraid of what was going to happen. But that still was a long time. And several times, I'm sure, across the, uh, across the, walk, the, in the walk, somebody said, Mom, Dad, how come, where, where's the water? What happened? How long is this going to last? Shouldn't we run? Boy, the donkeys aren't doing so well. We better, we better keep them going. They might get tired and stop. So they walked across the Jordan River. The Jordan River was at flood stage. It was the time of the year, harvest time, when the Jordan River overflowed its banks every year. Probably the time of barley harvest. But at this point, the Jordan River was not within its normal banks. It was wider and it was deeper than normal. And God stopped it. What would you think? And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to draw a picture here. I'm trying to draw a picture of what happened. The Israelites come and they're looking at this river. How are we going to get across this river? And Joshua says, Go to bed. Uh, tomorrow morning it'll be dry. They get up tomorrow morning and it's dry. And so they walk across. And they want to know what's going to happen next. They get to the other side. And when they get to the other side, God says to the Joshua, call the priests out of the water. They come out of the river, fed, walk across. And when they get to the other side, on the side where Jericho is, on the west bank of the Jordan River, the river comes back. 
maybe with a big rush, maybe not, doesn't say how, but it's obvious that the river is now coming back on its normal course. Okay? How does this happen? It's a miracle that the people are going to try to remember or need to remember. You couldn't cross the Jordan River on foot, especially at flood stage. There weren't any bridges. In fact, in Jesus' day, some 1,400 years later, there still weren't any bridges. But they would wade across certain parts of the Jordan River where there were forests. You could find some of those. This was apparently not one of them. So what you have is a miracle here set by God so that God had done something. Something marvelous. Well, it's going to get forgotten, right? How many wonderful things have happened that have been forgotten by men? So God said, I'm going to do something else. On your way across, guys, pick up 12 of the smooth stones from the middle of the river. Take them to the dry land on the, Jake, on the Jericho side of the river and set them up there. Set them up there beside one of the roads that goes down along the river. Maybe at a place called Gilgal where they will camp and they will set up perhaps them as an altar. Not clear. But they're set up at Gilgal. And whenever you guys go past there and somebody says, Hey, how did those stones get here? Your job is to tell them how they got there. Your job is to tell your children, see those stones? They don't belong here. They're here because God put them here. They're there because God stopped the Jordan River so that we could cross generations ago. God did that for us. Because God's powerful enough to stop the river. God's powerful enough to stop the sky. God's powerful enough to do all of these things. That's who God is. They were set up to be the beginnings of a long sermon. Set up. The Israelites had been living in the wilderness for 40 years. How did they live in the wilderness? They ate manna. Please don't try to ask the biologist what manna is. He hasn't got a clue. Manna doesn't follow any of the rules of what normally grows. For six days, it grew. Every morning it appeared like mushrooms or like dew. But on the seventh day, it didn't appear. And what they had picked up on the first five days rotted by the next morning. What they picked up on the sixth day didn't rot until the seventh day was over and it was the eighth day. This doesn't follow the rules of biology. God had been demonstrating these miracles all along. So the people are going to have to explain, well, why did you have to cross the Jordan River? Well, we've been 40 years in the wilderness and God said it was time to get out of the wilderness and go to the land of Canaan. How did you live for 40 years in the wilderness out there? Ever, lived, ever been in Death Valley? How do you live for 40 years in Death Valley? We were in California for 32 years. That's why I know Death Valley. I've never been there. I looked at the sign. I said, I don't want to go there. Okay? What they had seen in those 40 years and what they could relate to the people was the power and the discipline of God. The power in what he had done. The discipline in how he had judged them and cared for them and taught them what was right and wrong. 
when they gathered manna and tried to keep it overnight so they didn't have to get up early the next morning, uh, they went hungry. Because God said, I told you not to. And there were worse. There were other things they had done. You see, the 40 years were training for sanctification. They were protected by God's mercy. They were punished, sometimes killed, by his justice. And so they learned his justice and mercy, and that his mercy was based on grace. They learned it. And so when they told their children about those 40 years, they were supposed to tell them all of that too. Boy, that takes a lot of study. The river? Well, the river stopped for them. But the Dead Sea had, and the only reason, the only thing they had for a monument to the Dead Sea was the memories. But in 40 years, they'd pretty well forgotten the Red Sea. So God said, this time I'm going to set up stones. So you have to be reminded of, ever, of it every time you walk past. You see, God always gives us reminders of His power and grace. He always keeps His promises. He always keeps promises in church services, in service in the preaching. He always keeps His promises in the way He deals with us, He deals with our nations, the good ones and the bad. I want you to understand that that's what this picture of stones is all about. But there's more to the stones. So if you'll pardon my second point. The first is the stones. The second is this church's stones. Well, Israel was the church. So the church's stones are that too. By the time we get to verse 14, on that day, Yahweh exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. God set up for them somebody who would carry on the teaching, who would carry on the example with whom God would work and whom God would set apart. That is not a compliment to preachers, by the way. It's a compliment to God's work. That's what he's going to do. Not everybody's going to be as powerful in God's grace as Joshua or Moses, and certainly not as powerful in terms of preaching and sanctification. But God's going to set up people that you are going to have to remind them of. God's saying with the stones and with Joshua, just as he says with David and others, he's saying, I want you to have a visible leader so you can look at that leader and you can compare that leader to what I've said and he's supposed to compare you to what the Bible says. Because the Bible is part of God's stones. See, the church is now God's people. We don't have a Jordan River. We are the seed of Abraham by faith. We have a similar government. It's made of infallible men, of fallible men, not infallible men. But the works of the church still continue. God builds them up. He builds churches in unlikely places. Look at Paul. Look at Israel. Look at Lincoln, Nebraska. Look at Los Angeles, California. He builds churches in unlikely places. Because you see, the church is his power. And the same things he could do to Israel to bring them into the land of Canaan, he does to other people. He does it 
sometimes by miracles, but rarely. Usually he does it by preaching. So think about Acts chapter 7. Stephen has been arrested. He's been arrested for proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And they ask him, what is this doctrine you're teaching? And he preaches a sermon that he knows is going to bring them ready to kill him. And they do. And so the Sanhedrin takes him and kills him, stones him, and the church grows. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. And you've got a list, Paul's account, of all of the things that God did and all of the places that God built churches that were unlikely because the church is God's construction and where God puts the church is as unlikely as crossing the Jordan at flood stage. So the report is part of stone. Now, but we're supposed to teach the Old Testament. What was that catechism we read from today? What is that? Isn't that a standard by which we say this is what God has told us to do and it lasts for a long time and everybody says, what is that? And you start looking at it and here's what it is. It tells you how to deal with God. It tells you how God deals with you. It tells you what he expects of you. It tells you what he's done. It's like the stone. How about the Apostles' Creed that we say? The Apostles' Creed actually doesn't come from the Apostles. Admittedly, it comes probably in the, in the manner we know it as in the 8th century. But nonetheless, it's something that God has given us and we look at it and say, well, why do we say the Apostles' Creed? Do you have any idea how many things that call themselves the church don't believe the Apostles' Creed? Where they change the words so it fits what they would like it to be? God's given the church some stones that we're supposed to report on and supposed to teach. So when the children in confirmation class say, why do we have to memorize this? The answer is because God said so. Because it's telling you what God did. Yeah, but not just the Apostles' Creed. What are the other two, two parts of the three forms of union? The Belgic Confession from 1561. The Heidelberg Catechism from 1563. The Canons of Dort. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how many of you have ever read the Canons of Dort? How many of you even know what's in the Canons of Dort? Well, you need to learn the five points of Calvinism because that's what's in the Canons of Dort. And that describes how God works in salvation and how God works in sovereignty and how he deals with all of his creation. Those are the stones that we're supposed to go back and say, what are you doing making us learn these things? Here's the reason you're making, we're making you learn them. Because this is the truth that God wants you to know. And it's the responsibility that we have as the parents. Well, we'll get to the parents later. Why do we teach them? To report on God's doings, just like the stones. Just like Joshua's stone. But there are other parts, too. Anybody remember Constantine from your Roman history? Constantine was a general. He was in charge of the part of the Western Empire, which was called Gaul, France and Germany. And he looked at the men in his army and he said, most of them aren't Roman. 
Most of them are people who wanted to become Roman citizens and the easiest way was to join the army and fight for it. And they come and they fight because they want to be Roman citizens. The Roman citizens are sitting back in Rome and they've got their feet up and they're having bread and circuses and that's all they're doing. That's not going to be good for the empire. We've got to build an empire on something else. Now these Christian people, these guys who are Christian, we've been persecuting them for 300 years. And every time we persecute them, there are more of them. Something's going on here. We've got to get these Christians to be the ones who are part of our empire. So after he fought with the other general in charge of the western part of the Roman Empire, and won, first thing he did was he declared the church to be illegal. Christianity had been illegal. That was why they were persecuted. You could be killed for being Christian. You could have your property stolen. Constancy said, no, I'm going to make the church legal. Okay. Then he started going to church. And like most of the people who are in power, uh, everybody who wants to get somewhere in power decided to go to church with him. Which filled the church with all kinds of people you didn't want. That would become a problem. But God made a place for the church there. God made a place for the church in the Reformation. God made a place for the church in the United States, if I can take a minute. God made a place for the church in the history of the world, because the history of the world is his story. He made a place for the history of the world, and if you read the history of the world, I hope I don't shock you too much. But 1492 is an important year. It's got nothing to do with Columbus. Nothing to do with the United States. In the late 1400s, a king in Aragon, French, took the throne and he got married. He married a girl named Isabel, who was a princess of Castile in Spain. And on January 2nd, 1492, their army took Granada, the last of the Moorish strongholds in Spain. In 711, the Moors had conquered Spain. In 732, they got beaten back trying to conquer all of Europe. But they stayed in Spain, and the Spanish didn't like it. And they fought against them. And the last of their strongholds that fell was in 1492. That's a 781-year-long civil war. And when it ended, the politics in Europe changed. Because now the Pope didn't have enough allies in the English and the Italians to deal with anybody who came up against him. He needed the Germans. So when Martin Luther nailed his theses up on the door, uh, and the Pope wanted to go in and burn him at the stake like he had done John Huss, I couldn't do it. Because he couldn't afford to get the Germans mad at him. And God made a place for the Reformation. I could go on. I know that I shouldn't. But I could bore you to death with church history. Sometime maybe we can do some more. But there's even a way God made a place for church, for the Reformed Church in this country. When Frederick III had the Heidelberg Catechism written. Uh, he served it. The church used it. They, imported it. they exported it to the rest of Europe. And then Frederick died. 
His son took over. He was king for a few years, but he wanted to be Lutheran, and that didn't go over, and he died. Uh, he was upset at his family, so he decided he didn't want his family to continue, so he passed the crown to a nephew who became known as Frederick IV. Frederick IV had been king of, or his family had been king of Bavaria, as well now as the Palatinate. Frederick IV got married to a girl who was English. Uh, her last name was Stuart, as in James I of England and James VI of Scotland, King James. Uh, he had children. One of them became Frederick V of Bavaria. One of them was Elizabeth. Elizabeth, the Princess of Bavaria. She never got married. She was an abbess. And because she was reformed, and she was, she fought Descartes in writing in person. She was a student of his. Uh, and uh, now it became time for the persecution of the Palatinate to really get bad. And as that Palatinate persecution got bad, the uh, the people were looking for a place to go. And she was known for her mercy and for wanting to be able to help the poor. Now there was in England a guy who had the same idea. His name was William Penn. His father was the Grand Admiral of the British Navy. The king, Charles II, had borrowed an awful lot of money from Admiral Penn. Admiral Penn died. According to British law at the time, which may seem crazy to us, everybody who owed Admiral Penn money had to pay it back then so it could be distributed to Admiral Penn's family. Admiral Penn's son, William, couldn't live in England. So he couldn't continue to get money. He couldn't take money from England. They had to work something out. So they worked out a deal. I can't give you money. It's not legal. But I can give you land in the new world. So I'm going to give you a bunch of tree-filled acres, uh, which would be called Pennsylvania. Elizabeth, in her friendship with William, said, can my people who are persecuted and poor go live in your colony? And he said, yes. So the German Reformed Church came to Pennsylvania and grew up in Pennsylvania, and guess what? In the 1850s, they changed their name to the Reformed Church in the United States, and that's us. God made a place even there. So you may pardon me for my history, but that's one of the stones that calls us to see the power of God and the way he works. It does deal with the consistency of the church. You see, history of the world, all of it is his story. The nations, they all have reflections of the gospel according to Romans chapter 1. But they sin. It is our job to point that out. To our students, to those of you who are just growing to the point where you will become parents, or maybe going out to get jobs and take a role in society. But there's one other place I want to go this morning, and that's to part three. Our stones as parents. Our stones as parents are our teaching of our children, our personal testimony, the reports of our families and how our families came, given to our children and to our descendants. 
There's a man in our denomination who is now pastoring in California in Shafter. And I did my homework and I looked up and I said, uh, Reverend Zardman, uh, did you have a, res- uh, a relative in the early 1800s in the denomination? And he said, yes, but we don't talk about it. The history of our families. How did your family get here? How did it work? What did God do to build your family so that you could be where you are now? You see, God said to Joshua, you and your descendants will have to answer these questions of your children. Joshua to the people. Preachers to the people. Hmm. So here I am. But I don't just want to talk about preachers. How about preachers? Elders, deacons, teachers, parents. Your first mission field as parents is going to be at your knees. Not because you're on them. Because they're running around your knees. What do you teach your children? What do you teach your family? What do you teach your neighbors? What do you do about them? Oh, I go to church. Do you explain why? you explain why you do the crazy things you do? Because the world considers us crazy. You tell them what it is. You were given the responsibility by God to report on what he had done in your life to all those around you. It's your profession of faith. So, let's start with your children. What do you talk about with your children? Their favorite cartoon shows? What do you talk about? you have devotions with them? Explain to them what the Bible is? Teach them to pray? Do you teach them the catechism? You can promise to do that when the children are baptized. Do you teach them the history of the church? Our history. Well, yeah, but there's more of the church than just us. You teach them that. But then, how about you? How did God call you to faith? What happened? When did God call you to faith? How did your parents teach you? How do you pray for your children? These are the things that we are supposed to be doing because we are the stones that are supposed to speak to those children coming up behind us. Whether they've just come into the church and they're 80 years old or whether they just came into the church because they just came home from the hospital. We are supposed to be teaching them. We're supposed to be teaching all of the rest of the people who live around us. Just as the Israelites were supposed to teach the Canaanites that God did not remove from among them. What's your prayer life like? How do you remind your family and your parents and yourself of God's covenant with you? You talk about that in baptism when you commit them to God in baptism. You're not guaranteeing them salvation. You're saying, I promise that God will use me and I will be used to teach you all of the things that you are supposed to know and God won't let you go. He might not save you, but he will continue to discipline you because you know better. I'm supposed to teach you. You say to your children, you see, The greatest gift and the most powerful thing in witnessing the tool 
is a demonstration of God's grace in you. If I took you to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and I said, what does it say? It says that the real demonstration of the gift of God, the gifts of God, is that you think more of others than you think of yourself. That you're willing to have others despise you because you're telling them the truth because it's good for them to know and maybe God will convert them and keep them from hell. Your job, if you love them, and you're supposed to love your neighbor whether he's related to you or not, your job is to tell them that. Not with a club. With your life. With the way you treat them. The way you help them the way you do things for them. Your neighbors, your church members, your children, the general population. Ever stop and help somebody on the road? You ever go over and help a neighbor when you see something wrong? These are the things that are witness. These are the things that people look at and say, what made you do that? Ooh. Joshua, what made you pile those stones there? Jay, what made you do this? Because it's a testimony to what God's grace is and what God has done. Bow with me. We come before you, Lord. We ask that we may look at the stones that you have set up in our lives, the ones that you set up in the church, that we may see your hand, and we may proclaim that hand, that you would make it part of our lives and use us to make it part of other lives. We plead for that so that Jesus Christ will be glorified in his us, in us, in the work that he does in us. How could you be saved? Well, God does strange things. So, Father, use us uh-huh. in strange things and cause people to notice and listen. For the glory of your name. Amen. Oh,